engineering background, but I, I you know, I like kind of uh, moats that, that are kind of tangible and yeah. quantitative versus soft like that. So we'll see. I, I think, you know, uh, some of that kind of opinion has come to fruition with, with you know, cast brewers now worth less than some of our Series B companies, you know. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Hadley Harris, who is the co-founder of ENIAC Ventures. So Hadley has done a little bit of everything on his path to co-founding ENIAC. He started out as an engineer and then later took a role as a product manager at Microsoft and then a strategist at Samsung, where it became clear to him that big companies just weren't for him. In 2007, he joined a very talented AI team out of MIT at Vlingo, where he ran a few aspects of the business across product, strategy, marketing, until it was acquired for over $225 million. He then had a few more wins within the startup space, which we talk about during the episode, before starting ENIAC VC. So for those who don't know, ENIAC VC is a seed stage VC based on the East Coast. They've invested in some of the biggest names in startups like Anchor, which was acquired by Spotify, Airbnb and Hinge, and the list goes on. On this episode, we talk all things from product management to COVID-19 and the effect that it's having on some of their companies to venture capital in the bit more of a general sense. This was a great episode. Let's jump into the action. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me. So when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? I'd say my name's Hadley, and <laughs> that's about it normally. Uh, if they kind of ask what I do, I, I usually, depending on the audience, would either say I'm a, a venture capitalist or, or I invest in startups or I work with startups. Nice. Nice and concise. Nothing to... Cool. So, yeah, so before we talk about like VC life and, you know, how we're all affected by COVID-19, let's let's start from the beginning kind of thing. So, like, where did you grow up? Yeah, I, I grew up in, in downtown Boston. Um, I uh, grew up uh, mainly wanting to be either a rapper or a basketball player. He obviously <laughs> didn't have the right skill set for either of them. Um, but, but really liked uh, science and math, or, or probably better to say, those are the two things I was uh, good at and really terrible at the other topics uh, or subjects. Um, uh, so really kind of tended to focus on those and that kind of drove me into engineering and, and into tech. Wow. Where did that um, passion for like basketball and hip hop come from? Is like like influenced by family or like neighborhood? Yeah, it was a little bit, I think, of, of growing up in the city. Uh, I got into hip hop at a very young age. Uh, you know, when, when I was about eight or nine, and, and that was that was kind of at the early days of hip hop. So that that really kind of grabbed me, um, and and kind of have been a fan of hip hop ever since. Uh, not a huge fan of, of a lot of modern hip hop, but those especially the '90s hip hop. Mm. Um, and then growing up in the city, you know, you don't have as much space for uh, American football or baseball. Though I, d- I did play those sports as well, but but basketball is kind of my favorite sport. Uh, unfortunately. Not very quick, um, about six two, which would make me a very slow guard. So uh, it just wasn't in the cards. No, he didn't want to, you know, join the Red Sox or anything. That's the, that's the team over there, right? Red Sox. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan. Nice. Uh, although I, I have to admit, baseball is pretty boring. So I I only know the Red Sox because I watch Cheers. I don't know. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. So, okay. So you grew up in downtown Boston and then uh, you you ended up going to, to MIT. Is that correct? Uh, no, MIT. Penn. Penn. That's Penn. Yeah. And yeah, then... Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, no, you did pen. I beg pardon. And then, um, you know, you you went into the corporate world. So I guess at that time, you didn't have the entrepreneurial bug or the entrepreneurial spark or that wasn't on your radar at the time? Yeah, it really wasn't. I mean, I graduated from, from Penn, uh, studied mechanical engineering in, in 99. So it was right around kind of the, the dot-com bubble, right. Um, uh, right before it burst. Um, and interestingly you know th- those are just very different uh uh days and now you know the idea of starting something when you're young or or uh or joining a startup just wasn't something i had uh visibility in uh so i, I worked as a developer i, I joined a mid-sized software company called pegasystems it's, it's still around today and i've been doing uh reasonably well um so I worked as a developer for a couple of years and then started managing engineering teams so very much on on the development uh, business side, oh, sorry, development and, and building side, um, wanted to, uh, kind of marry that with more business acumen. So I went back to school, uh, at Wharton to get my MBA. Um, and, and then I did a couple stints at big companies at, at Microsoft and then, yeah. uh, moved to Korea and, uh, and worked for Samsung and corporate strategy and, and actually really didn't like the job. Uh, Samsung, especially in those days was, uh, kind of, very hierarchical, very rigid, kind of like, uh, I think about the U.S. military. Yeah. But, but what was really cool in that time is, so this was 2006, 2007. Uh, unlike most of the world, Korea already had 4G networks completely rolled out. Uh, and they, most people use these kind of very sophisticated, what we call like a dumb phone now. Uh, and just saw kind of what people were doing with these, with these high speed networks. And then the iPhone got announced and I was over there. Wow. And for me, it kind of just clicked and I and it felt like, okay, this is kind of a, a really kind of interesting point in, in technology and computing. So decided to move back to the U.S. with this kind of thesis that mobile would be the next evolution of computing and wanting to do something with that. Um, and it was really interesting time for me because, you know, you can't really look for a, a new job from Korea kind of uh, time difference and and obviously couldn't couldn't interview, so I kind of I had to leave my job, come back, and kind of came back fresh, mm. and gave me an opportunity for the first time in my life to kind of take a holistic view at what I wanted to do with my life. Everything to that point, I think, had been kind of one thing to another, you know, often having uh, student debt, so you know, a little worried about taking taking risks. And um, and actually, when I when I moved back to the states uh, uh, with this mobile thesis, one of my partners, Nahal. Uh, not my now partners, Nahal, had started a, a startup in the mobile space. One of my other now partners, uh, Vic, who, who had uh, all four of us at, at ENIAC had, had gone to undergrad at Penn together. Uh, Vic had, had just started at, uh, as a VC uh, at RRE here in New York. And they were kind of both in that space. So I started spending a lot of time with them kind of figuring out what I was going to do next. Mm. And so like, you know, just going back a few steps, with going into, I guess, the kind of ultimately like a hybrid role at, at Samsung and like Microsoft, right? What what made you decide? Because I think it's quite, well, I won't say it's completely unusual, but to go from like 
engineering to be interested in business like where did that kind of come from and then did you feel or did you see any resistance because usually people like engineers you know stay over there (laughs) um and like you know you know the business people do the business thing like how did how did you make that transition yeah the the transition i think for me was made possible and it's really the reason i i went to business school uh because to your point I, I really enjoyed being a developer and working on the building side, but I did feel very segmented over there. I actually was trying to kind of figure out a roles more on a hybrid, more around product or, or business development that would make sense. But it was very hard to kind of jump, at least within our organization. Uh, it was also, uh, you know, a time when, when technology wasn't as kind of a uh, big part of, of the economy and, and society as, as it is now. So it just wasn't as much information. So that's why I ended up going back to school and that allowed me to kind of reset and I, I knew I wanted to stay in technology and, and thus uh, micro, Microsoft and Samsung but wanted to be in more of a, a product or strategy role and that's that's what I ended up doing kind of product at, at uh, Microsoft and then more of a business strategy uh, a lot of market um, uh, entry uh, with Samsung yeah and so then with Blingo so how did you join the, like how did you get involved with the team um, and like, I know you were like head of business and marketing strategy, et cetera, there, like, how did, like, first of all, what did Vlingo do? Um, and then how did you guys grow it? So, um, uh, during that time when I moved back to the States, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I either wanted to want to become a VC or, or, or start something or, or join a really early startup. I, I linked up with some, uh, VCs up in Boston called General, uh, called, uh, Charles River Ventures, a guy named Ezar Armini. Uh, he was working on some deals that involved a lot of, uh, electric and mechanical engineering and, and that had, had been my, my degree on undergrad. So I, okay. I helped look at that. And then, um, they did a seed investment at a company called Blingo that was an MIT spin out. Um, and it was utilizing, uh, voice recognition for mobile phones. So it was actually the first unconstrained voice recognition. You can think of the technology very similar to like how Siri works now. Yeah. Um, so at first I was just kind of working with them, helping them out on behalf of Charles River and then kind of an independent, um, advisor and ended up jo- uh, joining them kind of in the early days is that first kind of, uh, jack of all trades business hire. So very early days I did biz dev and, uh, finance so actually was the kind of, uh, filling in as, as a CFO before we did a CFO, which was weird given I didn't have much of a finance background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, that could have been uh, so, fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, early days, everyone does does lots of uh, jobs, uh, and then over time, started running product marketing, uh, our kind of small strategy department. So we grew that out to four years um, uh, when we were acquired by uh, Nuance, which is one of our big competitors. We had about 110 uh, employees, had raised uh, about 56 million. One of my my jobs there is I, I ran. Uh, uh, fundraising for our series B and C, wow. um, and kind of meeting with a lot of, uh, venture capitalists back then actually really shaped kind of a lot of, I think, how I view the job now. Just ran into a bunch of assholes, you know, people would mm. go up and down Sand Hill Road and there would be guys, in, and they were definitely all guys back then, uh, <laughs> that would, you know, be like eating like a three course meal during the pitch or just like hopping on the phone and talking like while we were, talking or just walking out of the room without saying anything so oh man just like yeah just saw a lot of like bad behavior and uh that really stuck with me that you know i figured you know eventually when when i was 
on the investment side, I wanted to make sure at the very least, I, I didn't want to be an asshole. Yeah, no, and that definitely came across. I mean, even before the call, when I was telling you about that idea, I mean, my friend's product, you're like, how can I be helpful? I mean, and that was like the first three minutes of the call. So yeah, it definitely resonates. Um, and I've heard a lot of stories like that from so many different um, guys we've had on the show, just like, you know, VCs completely being complete assholes uh, for no apparent yeah, reason. Yeah, the bar is very low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so no, that sounds like an incredible experience. So like, I want to delve into a few areas within that. Um, because obviously you've done so much. So talk to me about like the growth aspect, um, you know, ha- focusing on the marketing side of things, like what was really working for you guys? Like what channels were you guys using? Um, I don't like the word hacks, but you know, along those lines, yeah. like what was really the thing that got you guys to where you were? Yeah, we actually were one of the first uh, com- app-based companies to utilize mobile advertising, which sounds crazy now because it's, it's become so ubiquitous. Um, but the, you know, I think the very first ad platform, AdMob, we were working with them and, and we were actually one of their biggest customers in the very early days. So trying to reach new customers via mobile ads. Right. Um, uh, and back then that was a very nascent, uh, industry. And we actually, I, I believe, although others may have done this too, kind of invented what became known as the burst campaign. So we would run a lot of ads in a very short period of time. And then push ourselves up the app store. So we mm. push ourselves up in the top four now, kind of where you normally see TikTok or Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of people would see that. And they eventually, Apple tried to kind of make that, uh, against their terms of service, but, uh, we called it a surge campaign. And then people, other people started doing it. And then it became known as a, a burst campaign. So it was a fun time. We were, you know, it was kind of a wild west of mobile back then. And we were trying different things. Um, so I was kind of splitting my time between that type of, uh, kind of growth marketing, um, and then more product marketing, working closely with our product team around kind of what, what features, uh, we'd roll out. And then we started to, uh, monetize the product, um, in kind of a similar way as you see kind of Google search work where certain things that people would ask for if they, uh, wanted to find a local business or maybe there was some things like travel. So I ended up kind of doing a, doing deals with folks like, uh, Yelp and, uh, travel companies and, uh, and basically kind of signing partners to all those. And it's actually kind of a, amazing. I haven't that I guess it's just the ethos of Apple, but you know, we were doing a lot of things back then that, that Siri still hasn't rolled out. Mm. Um, where, you know, you'd read incoming texts while you're driving. Um, wow. where, uh, you could have kind of like cool, uh, uh, set up cool things like, you know, give Philip a holler and it would like call you. Um, so yeah. This is like a really uh, ahead of its time. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Wow. Yeah. It was, uh, it, so, I mean, we, we had a nice exit. Um, yeah. But, two, you know, was it also, 225 million from what I, that's saw. right. Yeah. Wow. But you know, if we were in kind of today's environment, that would have been considered small back then. It was a pretty big exit. Uh, but I also think, you know, if uh, things had shaken out differently, I think we could have been a, long, a large standalone company. So I'll often think about that. Yeah, no, that's insane. That's an incredible, incredible story. And like, I guess during that period, like you said, when you joined, I mean, how big were they? Maybe what, 10 people at the time when you joined? Yeah, there, uh, less. Uh, I think I was the seventh and I was the first uh, non-engineer. Quote unquote non-engineer. Higher. 
Well, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> not, not coding on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, and so like once you stop uh, coding, like none of none of the developers respect you as being. A <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that before. Actually, <laughs> I've, my friend was running a company, and he he was an engineer initially, but when he started the company, he didn't build the tech. He had a CTO, and then as time went on, he was like, "Oh, let me chime in," and they were like, "Dude, don't come anywhere near this." Yeah. <laughs> Um, and like, what were some of the challenges that you guys experienced? I mean, cause obviously, you know, the, the story that you've told me, like we spoke about the exit and like the growth, et cetera, but I'm sure it wasn't like smooth sailing. So like coming, you know, going from like seven to 110, I think you said you guys reached, what was kind of like some of the growing pains that you guys experienced? Um, and like, what yeah, were some I mean, product issues as well, potentially? Yeah, there, there were a lot of hard times. I mean, um, the financial crisis happened, yeah. uh, at, around a year or two in, into it. Um, so, you know, especially kind of, we'll get into COVID that, that was something that taught me a lot of lessons. We, we had to do layoffs, um, pretty broadly, uh, to increase our runway and get through that. Um, so, you know, I'm sure, you know, you hear this before, but when you live it, you really understand it. Like, yeah. uh, even, even companies that from the outside seem like they're all up into the right. That's, that's never the case. There, there's a lot of hard times in there. Uh, I think you'd be amazed at the number of even kind of, really hot startups that end up IPOing that, that had to go through times where they weren't sure they were going to make it, um, uh, and had to do layoffs. Um, you know, we, we barely kind of during that time were able to raise our series C, uh, the, the markets had really frozen up. Uh, we weren't able to kind of, um, hit our revenue targets with, during that time and people weren't spending money. Um, so yeah, that, that always stays with me. I think it's really important to have that kind of experience. As a, as a VC, because at the end of the day, you really have to have empathy and, and be able to work with founders on their level, uh, especially in hard times. Um, so that's stuff that always really, those times really stuck with me. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, and so then after, you know, you had the exit, you, you, uh, I guess you done your earnout period, you watched your earnout period. Um, and then, and then you went to thumb. Yeah, so I joined a, a venture back business. I wanted to move back to New York. I was in Boston at the time, right. uh, and I, I I'd been in New York after college. Um, so joined a venture back business called Thumb that uh, General Catalyst and SoftBank and a few others had invested in. Um, it was a, a real time social platform for opinions, um, and joined as kind of a chief business officer type role. So not not unlike what I was I was doing at, at Flingo. Uh, really uh, high engagement. Um, uh, product we had one of the highest engagements higher than everyone i think but but facebook including kind of pinterest and twitter um uh interestingly uh but we were having trouble kind of really growing fast and the product was kind of based on social discovery and and uh uh social discovery as i found over time is just a hard way to grow because people uh if they're on a platform to meet others you see this a lot with dating apps mm. uh, you're very unlikely to recommend it to to others some some products have been able to break through that, uh, like Tinder, where it becomes kind of more of a game where you're using it in social settings, uh, but very rarely. And then we had some bad timing when we were going out for a Series B. It was when Facebook had just IPO'd. And people forget this, but when Facebook IPO'd, uh, there was a lot of pushback and they weren't monetizing mobile at all. Yeah. And there was a thought back then that, uh, and we were just starting to monetize and we were kind of raising on on a promise of, of being able to start monetizing our, our usage and uh, VCs just weren't buying it. Um, you know, they, they said, well, if Facebook can't do it, you guys can't. Of course, now, if you look at, you know, I, I haven't looked at uh, recent numbers, but the, the 
percentage of their monetization that happened from their bank, I'm sure is well over half. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just a tough time for us. Um, then, uh, we, we ended up getting acquired and it was nice. We, we got, you know, investors their money back, but you know, it was, it was also tough times, you know, uh, uh, in the final days of trying to, trying to kind of finish the acquisition, being able to hold on to the team, uh, ended up making it work. But, but again, those are the types of times that when working with, with founders now, kind of having been through, I think gives me a little more perspective than, you know, had I been someone who had come from more of a financial background and hadn't been in the weeds and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. It sounds like it was a bit of a tumultuous kind of journey there with them. Um, yeah, I, I think all the good things are. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Um, and are they still around? They're still around, aren't they? Uh, yeah, it became part of a company called White Pulse that was utilizing it to uh, 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 get data, especially out of the younger audience. Our, our, our audience was, was mostly uh, teenagers and young 20s. So, um, yeah, it's, they're still a private company. Yeah. And with both of these experiences that you've had, right, um, you know, there's a big, I guess, segment of your time that's allocated to kind of business development. And business development looks differently at every company for many different reasons. But like, in terms of business development, what were your main areas of responsibility and how did you kind of prioritize where to think about, you know, where you would be business developing? Um, yeah, it was pretty broad and changed over time. Because like um, you could say fundraising is an element of business development, right? But Yeah, yeah. So I was heavily involved with, with fundraising for both companies. That's probably one that kind of uh, cut across both. Uh, doing different type of distribution deals at, at, at Blingo. Uh, we came preloaded on a lot of, uh, Samsung and Nokia back when that was a thing. Devices and a, and a bunch of the, uh, mobile carriers would, would, would preload us on their Android devices like Verizon and AT&T. So it was, was involved in those types of distribution deals. And then, in, and then in both cases, uh, alluded to before kind of ways that we were looking to monetize the product were, were via partners. Um, you know, at Blingo, uh, ended up signing deals with, uh, Google and, and Microsoft as search partners and kind of played them off each other, uh, back when Microsoft was still really trying to compete in search, uh, to get kind of better deals from each of them. Mm. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty, uh, heterogeneous in terms of the types of biz dev activities. Nice. And are there any kind of like particular approaches that you take? Um, I had someone on the show recently actually speaking about business development and, you know, he was really focused on like relationships and it has to be like a good relationship and, you know, add value first. I guess in the start, in the tech world, is that, do you think it still applies? Yeah. I mean, when I think of kind of biz dev and, and sales now with the companies I work with, I'll, I'll, the majority of the companies we invest in these days are, are B2B. You know, I think your kind of go to market strategy and, and kind of biz dev broadly needs to be, um, kind of fit the product that you've built. So for example, if you take uh, one end of the spectrum of like a developer tool, um, most developer tools are kind of best done bottom up. So getting it in the hands of individual developers, let, let them play with it or, or even utilize it. Uh, and then over time, you can co go in and, and sell that product to the company as a whole. So either it could be a very cheap product or even an open source product that gets developed. Um, on the on the flip side, you have some very kind of top down um, companies that that uh, sales uh, that needs to happen kind of at a higher level at the enterprise level. Those tend to be you know uh, longer sales cycles, but if you can get them done, can be you know multi million dollar uh, 
uh, contracts, something like uh, RPA, one of our companies, Fortress IQ, that's automating a lot of the uh, tasks within large organizations. Yeah. You know, these are long sales cycles, but once you get in there uh, and get a foothold, they can be, you know, multi-million, even tens of millions of dollar contracts. Yeah. And yeah, and I'm going to switch gears now and, and start actually kind of delving in into kind of like the VC landscape and the work that you guys are doing at INIAC. Um, and so like when it comes to venture, like you mentioned, you focus predominantly on B2B, SaaS. Is that just you individual or as a fund? Because I, I see you have like a bit of like, you know, you have consumer brands in there, etc. Yeah, no, uh, over, overall, we've been kind of relatively balanced between B2B and, and consumer, especially in the early days. So we started investing in 2010. Uh, as I mentioned before, I started with three of my friends from Penn. We we're all engineering students together. Um, it first started while we were still doing our own entrepreneurial activities. So I, I was still at Flingo when we started it, uh, originally on a really small scale, uh, just with, uh, you know, our, our own savings and then grew over time. Um, but, but to your question, um, if you look at kind of 2010 through probably 2015, 16, it was pretty balanced between consumer and B2B. Mm. And then we just started to feel like there wasn't as much opportunity on the consumer side, especially we tend to focus on more technically driven businesses since, since we all have engineering background. Um, and we just haven't seen as much on the consumer side from a technical point of view, right. uh, that we're excited about. We're kind of, uh, in a chasm between mobile and, and maybe something else, you know, who knows, it might be XR, it might be some, uh, other areas like voice, but, um, uh, we feel like we're kind of in a chasm where there's just not a, a ton of opportunity and a large, tech companies have, have really kind of been able to exert their dominance, especially around the app store. Um, the, the types of consumer companies that have done well, or at least raised a lot of money have tended to be less technical. You see a lot of, especially here in New York, a lot of kind of physical product branded, mm, yeah. brand oriented stuff. And that's not really what we do. Uh, we, we, we like, we like more technical products. We, we're, we don't find that we're especially good at kind of uh, predicting whether brand as a uh, differentiation and a moat over time will we'll do well. So we kind of mm. stay away from that stuff. So for that reason, it's really driven us more to B2B, um, being mostly kind of SaaS companies, developer tools, and then a decent amount of kind of deep tech stuff like like autonomy and robotics. Yeah. Um, and ad tech, I see you guys were involved in Vongrel as well, which was you had a massive exit earlier. Was it this year or last year? Uh, last year, last summer. Yeah. We, yeah, we, we had, uh, we did especially a lot of ad tech um, kind of in the earlier days, these, these days don't look as much at it, uh, but, but had a kind of a good run between, uh, Bungle and, and tap commerce and a couple yeah, of others. Yeah. And what's the, what, at what point do you guys typically get involved? Um, what's the typical check size? Yeah. So usually we're leading, um, around two and a half to $3 million seed rounds or immediate into that, but there's a big range, you know, seed rounds now. It's kind of, it's more like a spectrum of individual, uh, kind of types of rounds. So, uh, we could do as small as, uh, we led a round, uh, that was only 750 in a company called Super Peer a couple months ago, um, up to, you know, we tend to top out with like a four, four million dollar round after that it gets a little bit out of our range. And then generally we're investing about half the round. So we'll lead the round, uh, or co-lead if there's another kind of like-minded fund. And we'll put in, you know, generally around one and a half, uh, and then leave one and a half for uh, either a partner fund or smaller funds or pre-seed funds that want to buy up. Um, so that's generally, we, you know, seed is pretty collaborative compared to Series B's or Series B's and A's still. Um, so we like to be able to work with with other partners on the on the investing side. Yeah. 
And like in terms of, you know, everybody has a different approach to kind of like investing and how they want to be reached out to and how they go about finding deals. Are you more of the nature of like, you know, cold email is fine or it has to be the warm intro kind of way to get involved with with you guys? Yeah, almost all of our deals come through warm intros. Uh, You you know, we've all been in technology now for, uh, you know, 20 years. So we've built up some pretty good networks and, and they tend to come through that. Uh, I do read every email that comes in, um, but you know there there is quite a lot, and it's hard for me to really dive in. Mm. So it, unless something really kind of piques my interest, or it seems like it's aligned with the thesis, it, it's really kind of hard to be able. I just don't have enough time today to really dig into to everything that comes in. So uh, in terms of us, and, and, and I think most most uh, VCs. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, a good entrepreneur can find a warm intro, you know, via LinkedIn or, or um, uh, you know, just find some mutual connections. Uh, and those tend to be kind of where we, we spend most of our time. Yeah. And obviously, over the years, you've seen some incredible companies, had some incredible exits. I guess you've probably kind of built up a thesis around what it takes to be a good founder, right? Um you know, what have you seen or what are the qualities that you tend to see in, in successful founders that you've backed that can be like repeatable or taught or something that you look for within founders or teams? Yeah, yeah, it's it it's um it's hard because, you know, great founders can be very different from one another. So it's hard to kind of have certain rules, but there are certain attributes you see. Um, certainly just being a, a really deep domain expert in whatever area they're doing. Um, preferably they've, uh, spent time in, in their space, either at a, at starting a company before or being part of a startup or maybe being part of a large tech company or it could be kind of, uh, with some of our deep tech companies, um, more out of academia. So just being kind of one of the, the, you know, ex world experts on whatever area, uh, they're going into, uh, a certain, uh, level of curiosity and, um, honesty about what they know and what they don't know. One thing I, I notice, uh, there's a pretty stark difference between repeat founders who, who generally are kind of, um, more successful and, and first time founders is repeat founders are, are always kind of very open and honest with themselves and with the VC they're talking to about what they do and don't know. Whereas a lot of first time founders will kind of try and bullshit their way through. Stuff, <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> Which it's just, it's just never a good idea. Yeah. You can only get so far with bullshitting. You know, I, I've, I've learned that myself, you know, so, uh, you know, so like, you know, if you ask about something that they don't know, um, the first time founder will kind of try and give you the best answer they can think of now. The repeat founder and the really good founder will say something like, you know, it, I, I don't know the answer, but these, but this is my hypothesis. And these are the things that I would test to see if that's true over time. And then based on the results of kind of X, Y, Z. We, we would go in this or, or maybe another direction. So mm. it's kind of a way of thinking and is in a, a kind of confidence to be open that, that tends to be uh, a marker of success. Yeah, I think it's more of a confidence thing um, because I think the yep. reason why first time founders, especially myself included when I, when I was building tech products, you know, you, you know, you go into it with a lot of insecurity and, you know, you think when you meet this investor, he wants you to have all the answers because you're asking for so much money. You know, a million dollars is a lot of money. 
Um, and, you know, are you going to give a million dollars to someone who doesn't know an answer to something that they're asking for the money for? Uh, so I think that's where it kind of stems from. And then obviously repeat founders are like, look, hey, I'm just going to tell you the truth because this is what it is, what it is, right? Um, so I definitely think it's a confidence. It's a confidence thing. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a big factor. It's also just the, the kind of more experience you have, the more you see how much kind of how much unknown information there is. We, we, I see the same thing with VCs and myself. When in the early days, you know, I had certain companies we invested in that I was like, sure would do well, or you know, maybe passed on them, was sure they wouldn't do well. You know, I, I've grown an appreciation over time that there's just so much unknowable information and so much kind of luck and randomness involved that you can never be too sure. It's like the, the more I do this, the less I think I know, uh, which is kind of a weird dynamic. Yeah, and like in terms of like you know, SaaS trends at the moment, what are you kind of seeing in the market in terms of SaaS companies? Um, you know, there was a period, like, I want to say a couple of years ago, where it was just like, everything was like SaaS, 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 SaaS. Um, and I feel as though, like, the the quote-unquote hype has, has died down. But I guess, have, have you felt that be the case? Yeah, I mean, I still think there's quite a bit. I mean, SaaS, I guess, is a very broad category. It's very broad, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so like, maybe the areas within um, change over time. Um, uh, but, but I think broadly kind of business to business software that, you know, is offered on monthly, uh, subscription or annual subscription, I, I think still has a lot of legs. I think we're, we're and we'll, ha- we'll have so going forward. Um, you know, some of the areas that I'm excited about, um, are utilizing, um, best of breed, uh, machine learning and, uh, not necessarily kind of inventing your own machine learning, but kind of utilizing what's, what's possible and then building a SaaS platform on top of that. So like the chatbot uh, you know, space, for example, potentially, yeah. Uh, chatbots themselves, it was an area we, we bet in like three years ago and it turned out to not, not, uh, really have that many, that much legs. Mm. Um, although I, I do think that that could change a lot of technology wasn't quite ready. Uh, but, more like uh, computer vision or voice recognition. Uh, I've been kind of working on a thesis that we made one investment that's unannounced and, and we'll continue to make more that just uh, audio um, is is underserved. And uh, especially if you think about kind of deskless workers, they don't have the opportunity to kind of uh, have their screen in their face a lot. So if there's a way to kind of interact with some sort of SaaS platform in a hands-free and often eyes-free way, whether, whether you're, uh, fixing machinery or you're in a, uh, uh, retail location, uh, via audio and, and having that done in a smart way, I, I think is, is really, uh, interesting. So, uh, stuff like that is kind of where I'm, I'm spending my time right now on, on SaaS. Nice. And on the consumer front, I mean, over the years, I feel like consumer, consumer tech has taken a massive hit. Um, I just feel like there's been way more losses than wins. Uh, and, I th- sure. and I think that's put a lot of VCs off. I don't know if that's how you guys have been seeing the market as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we've made very few consumer bets the last four years. And I think broadly that that's a good thing because it, it has been a bit of a bloodbath. Yeah. Um, I've been very skeptical of uh, a lot of the consumer businesses, that, uh, especially here in New York. A lot of these kind of consumer product businesses got funded, uh, I think kind of all all birds or away and some of these, yeah, all uh, these trendy Casper. ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been very skeptical of those and, and they've raised a lot of money and some may do well. I, I just don't know, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's just too easy to commoditize them. Yeah. Uh, and their, and their moat, which is something we put a lot of emphasis on tends to be, I mentioned this earlier around building a brand. And I just don't know how you, 
how you predict that. I, I just yeah. don't have a good feel for branding. Maybe it's my, you know, uh, engineering background, but I, I, you know, I like kind of, uh, moats that, that are kind of tangible and yeah. quantitative versus soft like that. So we'll see. I, I think, you know, uh, some of that kind of opinion has come to fruition with, with, you know, Casper is now worth less than some of our series B companies, you know? Oh, really? And, uh, I didn't know so, they've had a hit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're pretty, uh, I, I haven't looked at the stock recently, but it, it's pretty, it's pretty really low. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm just skeptical of those types of businesses. Now, I've always had this opinion and, and I've been wrong definitely in the past about when it's going to happen that there is going to be some sort of kind of move to some sort of XR volumetric, um, computing platforms. Um, I think a lot of folks, you know, if you look over the years, lost money kind of betting on AR and VR and just mm, never really came yeah. to fruition other than some kind of Niantic type gaming platforms. Um, I, I, it's, I think it's going to happen at some point. Uh, I'm really interested to see kind of what happens with COVID because it is a situation where I think, especially VR, you could see some more usage. Um, I, I think it, with all these people kind of being remote and using, um, uh, zoom so heavily like like we are right now mm. um i think there is an opportunity for some sort of more immersive uh experience whether it's uh kind of more of a zoom uk case like use case like uh like like business or more of kind of a house party consumer um use case uh, it feels like there's something there and that now might be kind of the time for some of those technologies to kind of be ready for prime time as as kind of volumetric capture and 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 technologies like that have, have come a long ways um but it, i'm kind of early within that kind of thinking and, and it's probably a couple of years yeah no absolutely i think that the vr uh, that's really interesting i like the vr aspect for with like working from home i never thought about it in that sense i was thinking yeah, more about I, like I, productivity I have, tools but yeah yeah i mean i have my oculus sitting on my desk i just powered it up for the first time in over a year because <laughs> i you know feel like i need you know i'm stuck in my New York apartment and yeah. want to like be able to go to like a mountainside. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> get on your you can get on your Peloton bike and then that's right. Put your put your VR headset on <laughs> and then you're cycling in the mountains. It's fine. Um, I think what, you know going back to the consumer side of things, I think another reason why it's been a bloodbath is just because like you know customer acquisition costs are it's just through the roof. You're raising money to spend on Facebook. Um, right. and you know, you, you go to an agency to create this brand for you. Then you go to Facebook. So like you said, there is a, it's commoditized and there's nothing, there's no real IP in any of this really. Um, so yeah, I think that's another reason why I feel like consumer tech and consumer trends are like going to be on the decline for a, a long time, unless you've just got something that is a complete hit and it goes viral and you don't spend any money on marketing, which makes you a success, I guess. But that, that, that yeah. seldomly happens. <laughs> point, as long as those growth um, avenues are kind of dominated by very few companies, namely Facebook and Google, uh, it's going to be difficult because it's just so costly to grow. Yeah. And like, you know, it's, you know, you mentioned COVID earlier, but, you know, it'd be good to kind of hear your thoughts on like, so like, how has it affected you guys at the moment and affected the fund? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we've been fortunate overall that, uh, most of our companies are, are kind of pure software, um, or maybe if there is hardware, there's some sense, you know, sensors involved, but, 
uh, not really reliant on, uh, you know, bricks and mortar retail or, or plugging together in person. So we've, I think we've gotten affected less than gen- certainly the general economy, but even other VCs. Also, a lot of our companies raised, uh, you know, Series A's, B's and C's last year. So a lot of them are, are sitting on a good amount of cash. So we feel fortunate from that angle. Um, it's been extremely busy uh, the, the first three or four weeks since it really got going. Um, we're probably the actually I'd say the busiest I've had since I've been uh, kind of a pure investor. Certainly wow. when we were getting Eniac off the ground and I was still doing um, my thing at at, at Twingo and Thelm, those were extremely busy times. But um, and it's just spending a ton of time with our portfolio, making sure they're optimized for success. Um, you know, making sure that uh, you know a lot of companies kind of have a certain growth rate built into their numbers and they're spending money. Um, you know, with that assumption and the reality is even kind of a pure software SaaS business is very likely going to miss their sales targets, uh, in Q2, maybe probably Q3. They're going to have higher than uh, expected churn. Mm. Um, so kind of having to pull back the assumptions there. And then that generally means you need to pull back on, on your spend and lower your burn. Um, so we've been trying to push all of our companies have at the very least 12, but hopefully at least 18 months worth of runway. So. There was kind of a triage, uh, and you know, we've been investing since 2010. So, you know, we, we have, uh, made over a hundred investments and, uh, the majority of those are active. So that, that took a ton of time and, um, but you know, it was extremely important work. So that, that was kind of the focus for a, uh, a few weeks. And then that started to kind of, uh, get done and, and take less time. And then we had the whole stimulus package here in the U.S. with, with PPP. So. No one knew what was going on. It's a whole shit show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure other countries rolled it out better, but, um, so that was, there was a whole week of whether all countries should apply to that and who made sense to do that. And then there were certain kind of restrictions around, uh, what rights, uh, investors could have. So there was that. But interestingly, I kind of, I've been home, I think four weeks now. It's starting to kind of, uh, loosen up. So I, this has been the first week where I actually feel like I have some kind of free bandwidth to start looking at new opportunities. So starting mm-hmm. to ramp that up and, and, uh, and talk to new companies. You know, we, uh, we have plenty of, of money left in our, our current fund. Uh, we're planning on doing a number of investments, uh, the second half of this year. So we're going to keep moving forward with that. Um, you know, I think if you look at, at, um, past kind of financial, uh, uh, hard times, whether it's the, uh, the financial crisis that I mentioned before when I was at Blingo or the dot com bust when it went early, my early days when, when I was at, um, Pega Systems, mm. you know, great companies come out of that, uh, companies that are, are generally built for, for scale and are thinking about, uh, thinking about margins at early days, think about growing in, in a kind of a, um, a scalable way w- without kind of burning too much money before they, they have traction. Um, you know, I, I think it's actually a recipe for, for really interesting, uh, opportunities. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And like, you know, with obviously since COVID's come into play, um, we've seen, you know, industries like, you know, travel tech has taken a massive hit. Um, I don't know if you have any travel tech companies in your portfolio. We that don't. We're very, very fortunate, but yeah, it's a really tough place to be. Yeah. And then, um, uh, we only have, uh, couple of companies, one or two that between, uh, sell into kind of situations like offices and another, uh, for bricks and mortar retail. Oh, like Eden, for example. Yes, exactly. Like Eden or beta. Um, you know, that's, it's just tough when, when no one's coming to the office or or obviously people can't go and buy things in physical spaces. Um, you know, 
those types of companies have had to make the most drastic uh, adjustments. Um, but but fortunately, you know, uh, I think headed by great entrepreneurs and have taken the necessary um, uh, precautions and cha- made the necessary changes to to get through this and have kind of over a year a runway to to when those uh, when their markets will start to come back over the next quarter or two. Yeah, and what do you kind of predict will happen like post COVID? Like, how do you see the you know the startup ecosystem? you know, coming out of the shadows after COVID and, and, you know, obviously there's going to be a recession. I mean, there's definitely going to be one in the UK, <laughs> um, but like, I guess in the States as well, I'm sure there's going to be like economic downturn. So like, what do you think is going to happen to the market post then? Yeah, I, uh, it's hard to predict kind of the details, but I think at a high level, I feel pretty confident that um, we're going to enter a new norm that will be pretty different than we came in into. And, and it's not the, you know, certainly COVID is a terrible thing and, and people are losing their lives and getting sick and that, that really sucks. But at least from kind of the, the, the startup ecosystem, this was going to happen anyways. We, we've been running through just crazy frothy times. The yeah. Last few years, and that was not sustainable. And we and, and a lot of other VCs were starting to prepare for that. So we've been assuming that there were going to be some sort of pullback um, probably this year, uh, either before or after uh, the U.S. elections. Um, so we've been kind of preparing for that. I certainly didn't see this and ha- knowing that it would happen in like two weeks. Yeah. Uh, but strangely, from an economic point of view, it, it's not that different, uh, um, or, or at least it's something we, we were thinking about. Um, so my guess is we're going to kind of return to kind of some level on making air quotes normalcy within the startup ecosystem. Um, where you actually, you know, need need strong traction to raise uh, your follow-on rounds. Mm. Where, where you need to think about the the economics of your business model. Um, where where you need to grow in you know a sustainable way uh, instead of just kind of cascading new rounds and, and kind of growing without any thought to to margins and and eventually uh, being profitable. Um, so my guess is we're going to return to something like that, which I think in the long term is best for everyone. Yeah. And you alluded to it earlier in terms of what you've been doing with some of your portfolio companies, you know, since COVID-19 has, has come. Um, but like, what do you feel COVID has exposed the most about like the startup ecosystem? And I know, like you said, you know, we, there was a bubble. Everybody knew something was going to happen. Uh, we didn't just know it was going to happen in two weeks. But like, do you think, do you feel like, COVID has exposed anything specifically about like the startup ecosystem and how it currently has been operating. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is kind of, as I mentioned, the, the just the general frothiness that, that the bar to raising follow on rounds had just gotten too low. There was just too much FOMO amongst VCs that were more worried about missing out than, than kind of fully vetting opportunities. Mm. Um, and I think the right sizing of that where, you know, FOMO really should be balanced with like fear of making a bad investment. And, and, uh, and I, and I think that, uh, that it is exposed that that's where we were. And, and a lot of companies that were, were going too fast or business models didn't make sense. I think we're exposed. Interestingly, I think a lot of that was already happening. I, I think we started to see this, um, last summer and fall, especially with, uh, companies like WeWork that just had really like shitty business models, but no one seemed to be paying attention to it, uh, doing really either having trouble in the, or, or Casper is another example, having trouble in the public markets or not in WeWork's case, just totally, you know, imploding before they could go public. 
Um, so I, I think these aspects were already started, were being reflected in, in a lot of entrepreneurs and investors were, were already adjusting. Mm. And this is just kind of catalyzing that to, to move even quicker. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of, I would say that's the, the main exposure that, that I've seen. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And yeah, like the whole WeWork saga, I think put made everybody kind of like just stop and take a look at <laughs> what's actually going on here. Uh, oh yeah, what a debacle. <laughs> oh man, I wish I was in New York still when this was all happening. Um, I, well, in fact, I lived directly across the street from the very first WeWork, which is kind of funny. Oh, the one is, the every day. is that the, is, it's in New York. It's, yeah, uh, it's in Man- Manhattan. Grant, that's right, Grand and Lafayette. Yes. I live on one corner and, and it's on the other corner. It's still a WeWork today. Is that like, um, what's the name of that neighborhood? Uh, it's kind of Soho, Lower Nolita. We're, we're kind of a, a be, sit between Soho, uh, uh, Little Italy, and Nolita. Yeah, I forgot the name of that place, but there's a name for it. It's like, or maybe I'm thinking of someone, Gramercy, that's what I was thinking, that's somewhere else. Oh, that, that's further uptown. Yeah, that's further uptown. Yeah, that's it. Get my bearings. Okay, no, no, this was, <laughs> get my bearings. No, that's, that's, uh, no, that's been super useful. So, I want to switch gears now and kind of work towards wrapping up um, and just ask a few rapid fire questions. Um, you know, I ask all my guests these questions just to see how they answer it. So yeah. Um, what has, or who has been your biggest inspiration? Uh, my little brother, he, he has uh, down syndrome. So kind of seeing uh, what he's been able to do with, with what he's been given kind of has inspired me my whole life to, to kind of take advantage of, of my opportunities. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, favorite podcast. I'll throw a plug to uh, we have a podcast seed to scale. Yeah, um, I, just, which, I saw that. You have some great guests on there. I would yeah, love to thanks. speak to Josh. I want to get Josh on as well, actually, from first round. Oh, great! <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, check it out. Um, favorite blog? I don't have a blog. I read religiously. I I, I generally uh, read Nuzzle in the morning, and that kind of takes me to different blogs. So I'll kind of throw that out. It's my favorite blog. Okay. I thought you were going to say what every VC says and say Shutekiri. You know Shutekiri? Oh yeah, no, that's good. Every- I agree. <laughs> okay. Uh, favorite book? Uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. Nice. Favorite Instagram account or Twitter account if you don't use Instagram? Oh uh, yeah, I, I spend much more time on uh, Twitter. Uh, it's kind of all over the place. I guess Fred Wilson probably over the years is what I've kind of followed those places. Okay, Fred. We like Fred. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? I think dunk, dunk a basketball. I, that would be really fun. You've never dunked? Uh, I can, I, at my height, I could dunk a tennis ball, but never a basketball. Oh. And, that, and that's definitely not happening now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? I mean, practice makes perfect. I don't know. Uh, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? take more chances I, I didn't really start taking chances until i got into my 30s uh, and i wish if i go back uh when i was in my 20s i, I would have i would have taken uh more more shots in life you know I, every, every time i've taken risky chances it's it's generally paid off one way or another either something good has happened or i learned a great lesson so that would be my lesson to my 21 year old so nice um if you had 100 dollars in your favorite city what would you spend it on and where would that city be uh, I guess overall New York's my favorite city, but I'll say Paris, probably my favorite city to visit. So, you know, $100 gets you an amazing meal and bottle of wine in Paris. Uh, so probably even just my, even for my wife and I, so that'd probably take it. Nice. 
what's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? In the, in the really early days, startups should not worry about growing fast, which may sound weird, but you really want to focus on setting yourself up for hyper uh, sustainable growth rather than the growth itself. So don't try and kind of just onboard customers, kind of make sure your product and your go-to-market, the way you interact with customers is scalable. And I guess, what's your what's your vision for ENIAC? And, you know, I usually ask, yeah. you know, founders, like, what's their vision for the company? And it's always like IPO and stuff. But like, what's your vision for the fund? Yeah, our, we've always been focused on, on being the world's best seed fund. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we've stuck with seed versus growing and doing kind of later stage investments. We just think it's a much better fit for our skill sets. So I'll, I'll be happy if I can retire and some much smarter people take ENIAC over. Uh, and we're kind of the clear, clear best seed fund in the world. That mm. would be very happy. Nice. And like, I guess in terms of like with startups, um, what's the best time to, you know, cause seed, some people will look at seed and, you know, that could be pre-launch, pre-product. Do you have a, a specific criteria in terms of like when you prefer people to reach out? Yeah, they, they can be pre-launch, but we'd like to have a product built and have be in some early conversations with potential customers so that there's some, referenceable customers on the B2B side, at least. Right. Um, uh, but they can be pre-launch. Uh, but generally, like to be able to kind of play with the product, understand what it does, and then again, like put something in front of customers that they can give feedback to, to really understand how they would use it. Got it. Okay, Hadley, this was, uh, this was amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to find you, where can they get in contact? Uh, yeah, my, my Twitter is at Hadley. Pretty, pretty easy. Um, and I'm, yeah. I'm pretty good about... Uh, uh, staying on it there. It's actually better than email in terms of reaching out to me directly. Wow. How did you, you must have been like the first person on Twitter. How did you get that handle? Uh, my partner Nahal got it from Twitter, uh, in the early days. Oh, wow. He's, he's friends with Jack Dorsey. So, uh, yeah, he back channeled it for me. <sighs> Look at that. It's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hadley, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Just want to say another huge thank you to Hadley for coming on the show. It was great having you on at such short notice as well, given the, the circumstances. So, you know, shout out to you for that. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, stay safe and keep grinding.